Hello everyone, welcome to Crossroads where faith and culture meet. I'm Rita Peters and I'm here with Mark Meckler, my co-host. Mark, how are you today? I'm doing great. I'm enjoying the book that we're reading our way through and, and I know I'm going to enjoy talking about it today too. Yeah, we've got a lot to cover today. So if you missed last week's program, last week we started off the new year right by diving into a series of episodes on the topic of social justice. We're basing it off a great new book that I encourage you to pick up on Amazon. It's called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, 12 Questions Christians Should Ask About Social Justice. The book is written by Thaddeus J. Williams. That's Thaddeus J. Williams. Mark, remind me again why we're wading into this topic that is fraught with controversy. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, number one, I think we shouldn't avoid controversial topics, so I never worry about that. But I would say the reason we're doing it is we're hearing that term in every sphere of American life right now. And by the way, this is true all over the Western world. So we're hearing it in politics, uh, we're hearing it in church, we're hearing it in businesses, uh, we're hearing it in social situations. So you're gonna have that thrown at you, this idea of social justice. People might even ask you, well, don't you believe in social justice? Uh, and you need to understand what is meant by that when people say social justice, and it's not just one thing, as we talked about last night. And then you need to be able to understand as a Christian, how do you ground that in a biblical worldview? How do you answer that question? Because of course, as Christians, we believe in justice, and the Lord is the ultimate dispenser of justice, and we're told to do justice throughout the Bible. So what does that mean in conjunction with this whole idea and this whole movement for social justice? Right. No one wants to be anti-justice, right? That's why everyone wants to slap the label social justice on everything that they personally support. So we're going to help people sort of discern what justice really is in this context. Today, we'll be covering part one of the book, which focuses on how the place of God in our worldview affects our understanding of social justice. And we have to start with the existence of God at all. Mark, why would you say that a belief in God as the ultimate authority is important to any proper understanding of justice. Yeah, and I, I would take it one step further and say it's not only important, it's indispensable. The reality is without an ultimate source of justice, you're dealing always in a system of moral relativity. If I decide, if it's up to me, what's just and what's not just, well, that depends who I am, what the context is, what period I live in, what's my government situation. And that's not really justice, that's just moral relativity. And so if you have God as the center of your moral universe, the center of your universe as is proper, then you understand that there is a place from which justice and standards of justice emanate. And you can focus on that point when you're trying to decide if something is just. Yeah. William says this, and I'm quoting him here, Refusing to give the creator the honor and value he's due, we turn and bow to the cosmos. We endow created things with an ultimate value that they are not due. This is a double injustice. We fail to give both the creator and the creation what they are properly due, end quote. And of course, giving people what they're due is, you know, the, the basic 
concept of justice. Mark, I really like that Williams doesn't shy away from the fact that many injustices of the past can be attributed to people who profess to be Christians. But he says, basically, if we say we're Christians, but we're perpetrating injustice, that's revealing what we actually worship, which is not really the creator. What we embrace as justice really reveals what our worldview actually is. Mark, do you think that's fair? Oh, yeah, it's absolutely fair. You know, we see it in some of the conquistador conquests, and he uses this as an example. And the conquests are over societies that are practicing a lot of human worship, right? Uh, and they're worshiping yep. to false idols. They're doing horrendous things in the name of their God, uh, which is something that they have created, right? It's not the real, the one true living God. And so they're killing people and torturing people to honor or appease that God. The conquistadors come along professing to be acting in the name of our God, the one true God. They profess to be Christians. And then they come in and what they're really doing is they're taking over that society. One would hope for good, but then they enslave the people. And according to them, they put in a system where they actually not only own all the land yeah. and they've conquered the people and the government and the cities, but they actually own the people themselves, the human beings. And obviously this is the antithesis of Christianity. That's not something that that our God would allow as just. That's certainly not social justice. And so what you see is Christians coming in acting, quote unquote, as Christians, yeah. but acting in what I would describe as a very immoral, unjust, unjust way. Right. And so that reveals that they're actually not worshiping the one true God. Now, the next point Williams makes is that a proper view of justice not only acknowledges God as the creator himself, like in the first place, but also acknowledges the image of God in every person. And this is a big one, right? Because it seems to me that a lot of injustice in the world stems from the failure to recognize that every human being is an image bearer of God. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I actually think this is one of the hardest things to do as a human being. And if we apply this to the modern political world, and Williams discusses this, he, he challenges us to look at somebody who is the antithesis of everything that we believe in, uh, you know, our political beliefs, it could be our religious beliefs as well. Somebody who's a you know, strident atheist, pro-abortionist, uh, maybe we consider them social justice warriors and we're opposed to that, that terminology and the way that's used. And then look at them and in our minds say image of God or image bearer, right? Imago Dei uh, is the Latin for this. And, and it's hard to do. I, I can tell you when I read that part of the book, I tried to think of people like that. I tried to think of political figures that I'm highly opposed to that I consider very polarizing and love people who I think hate our country. And I'm trying to imagine image bearer when I look at them. And if you can do that, I'm not even saying if you can do it successfully, if you just do it, it will change how you deal with people and how you talk about other human beings. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Williams introduces in this part of the book the concept of the imminent frame. And Mark, I had never heard, I'm, of course, I'm familiar with the concept, but had never heard it called this. Can you explain for our audience the idea of the imminent frame? I'm actually going to let you do that one, Rita. 
<laughs> yeah, well, so the imminent frame is this whole idea that um, everything that humans have to work with is inside this closed box. So it's all about the material, what's created, matter. And um, there's no materials that we have to work with other than what we can feel, touch, observe, and experience. But the problem with that is that there isn't anything inside the box of material that provides a foundation for equality, dignity, or value. I mean, if you were to ask me, what is the basis for human equality? Like, why, why do you think that's the right way to live or to treat people? The only answer I can give, Mark, has to do with what's outside the box, right? It's because outside the box, there is a creator, there is a designer of the universe who endows every person with unique value and dignity and creates them in his own image. But there's nothing inside the box that can give a proper basis for equality, dignity, or value. So do you think he's onto something there? I mean, what what basis is there other than stuff that's outside the material of the yeah, world? Yeah, I agree with it. Yeah, but I'm going to be frank here with our viewers. I found it a little bit confusing the way he was describing that. And here's part of the reason I say that is because as a Christian, I think God's both inside and outside the box. I mean, God is everywhere. God's inside everything in our material world and should be the filter through which we look at the material world and the external world. The best summary I could get of this, and I, I wasn't sure I was correct, is when I'm talking to people who are not believers, who do not base their code of morality on the Bible, on the word, I often ask them, well, where do you get that from? Mm -hmm. And they say, well, I just know what's right and wrong or something like that. And I say, so that can change with times and circumstances, right? And they will usually just openly say, yeah, absolutely. And it's different in different societies. Well, that is going back to something we previously talked about, moral relativity. And moral right. relativity leads to communism and Nazism and death camps and human sacrifice. If you look back to the Incas or the Mayas and all the human sacrifice they were practicing, well, that was appropriate at the time. And I guess you could argue inside their imminent frame, but they would argue, Rita, and this again, why I found this a little bit confusing, they would have argued if you were talking to them back at the ancient Mayans or Incans, they would argue, well, God was outside the frame. God was mm -hmm. the creator of all things. And they would argue that the idea of human sacrifice came from their God. So I felt like that, that to me was a little bit shaky. Yeah, I see what you mean there. Um, but going back to the moral relativism issue, the problem is if there's nothing outside the box, if you're going to absolutely deny the existence of a creator who made the world, um, then, then there's no basis for judging between one person's view of what's right and what's wrong and another's. There's no basis then for saying that, you know, human sacrifice is wrong if it's just all based on your opinion. So there has to be something outside that box to make sense of it. 
my favorite quote, I think, from this part of the book is on this topic. William says, and I quote, only if there is someone good, someone beyond the box who made the box, someone whose image all of us bear, regardless of our physical, economic, sexual, or political status, that things like equality, dignity, and value become more than bumper sticker slogans, end quote. And I think that's kind of the best summary of the point he's trying to make here. Yeah. You know, and I always want to be, again, honest about the books that we're reading. I don't always agree with everything. (laughs) And I think what he's doing here is something that, to me, it's a mistake that some authors make is they come up with a whole new language set, a whole new idea of concepts to drive something or describe something that's relatively simple. And that makes it more Mm -hmm. complex for me. I'm kind of a simple guy. I like things (laughs) like derived down to their simplest elements. When you say moral relativity, I know what you're talking about. You're saying it just Well, it depends on your perspective, whether something's right or wrong. If you believe in the ultimate creator of all things who tells us what's right and wrong, then you don't believe in moral relativity. If you don't believe in that creator, then you do believe in moral relativity. And that means in some circumstances, absolute evil is okay. In our society, you know, if you ask almost anybody, 99 and 9 tenths percent of people, people who are mentally sound, is child sacrifice okay? They say, no, of course not. It's abhorrent. But I can tell you, I've had many discussions with people where I go down this lane of moral relativity and I ask them, well, what about in a society, you know, a primal society where they practice child sacrifice? Uh, they, they didn't believe in Jesus Christ. They didn't believe in the one true God. Even maybe if they'd been exposed to Jesus Christ, was it okay for them? And I find that ultimately most of them will say, yeah, well, that was okay for them. And then I, so it just depends on time and circumstance, whether whether Jesus, I mean, whether child sacrifice is okay. And I find that they'll be uncomfortable, but most often people who are actual moral relativists will say, yeah, that's okay. Wow. That's really scary. It is. (laughs) Um, So one thing that I like that Williams did is when he's talking in this part of the book about um, the whole philosophy of materialism, which is, you know, popular among atheists that we're all just material well, if we're all just our bodies, then people are absolutely not equal, you know? And he talks about Michael Jordan and his ability to slam dunk a basketball, which I will never be able to do. I don't know about you, Mark. Um, But I wonder, you know, when I read that, and it seems so obvious, you know, people don't have equal physical abilities. We're not all geniuses. You know, we're not when it comes to the material of who we are, we're not equal in that aspect. So do you think that people who, you know, subscribe to that kind of the atheism and materialism, do you think they ever stop to think about what is your basis for the principle of human equality and dignity? No. And I think this is a fundamental weakness of the left in general. And and I would say of many of our Uh, co-conspirators on the right, we have an obligation, I think, as thinking beings. I mean, this is what hopefully separates us from the beast is that we can think about things and reason our way through. And we have an obligation to do that. When we say all men are created equal, what do we actually mean by that? And I think people say that as sort of a trite thing that has been said through the ages, came from obviously from our founding documents and people just say it, but they don't 
understand what it really means. All men are created equal. You have to remember it says created. First of all, right. that, that implies by a creator. And what does it mean equal? Because I don't think anybody rationally would say that you or I can slam dunk a basketball and not everybody has the mental capacity to make it through law school or make it through medical school. Different people have different gifts. So we're absolutely not all created equal. Everybody's created with a different set of gifts and hindrances. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So this, this whole part of the book, Williams is really kind of setting the stage and helping us to analyze the way we think about justice and how we can properly identify what justice looks like in the world. And his third point in this part of the book, we're going to spend our the rest of our time on today. And that is that we all tend to make false gods that skew our idea, our understanding of what justice is. And he we're gonna we're gonna talk about whether we agree with this or not in a little bit, Mark, but he thinks that there are certain false gods that the political right tends toward and others that the political left tends toward. So we might have we might agree or disagree <laughs> with how he sets that up. But I want to start with the definition. Williams defines idolatry or the setting up of a false god as whenever we make some good thing into an ultimate thing. And at that point, it becomes a destructive thing because it wasn't meant to be an ultimate thing. So we're going to go through and examine each of these as we set the stage for discussion through the rest of the book. And the first four are the ones that Williams thinks are the more common pitfalls for the right. And like I said, we'll come back to that in a minute and see if we agree with that or not. And so I'll just name them quickly first. They are stuff, solitude, sky, and the status quo. They're all S words. I don't know how people do that, but it kind of works. Now, we all know what he means by stuff. That's when we make prosperity or material goods or affluence sort of the primary goal in our life. Mark, I'll have you talk a little bit about the second one, which is solitude. What does he mean by that? Yeah, you know, uh, it's a, I think he crammed that into an S that isn't necessarily appropriate. Because yeah. when you think of solitude, you know, I think of a guy sitting alone on a mountaintop. And mm -hmm. metaphorically, that might be good. But what he really means is rugged individualism. The idea yep. that, you know, it's about me and I'm a tough individual and I can go it alone and I can get it done and each man for himself. That kind of attitude is what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. And and I so this is a great point for this sort of continuum that he cre creates, which is there's nothing wrong with anything that I just said. In fact, I practice that stuff and I think it's really good. And I think the country would be better if more people nodded along and said, yeah, I agree with that. And I think probably all of our viewers do. But the question is, if you take that to its ultimate end, if it's that's really what you worship, that is idolatry. And think of the damaging nature of that. I alone determine my own destiny, right? Well, that's not true. God's in control of everything. Are we worshiping the right thing? Or are we worshiping the self? If it's all about me and my rugged individualism, am I doing justice? Am I looking right. out for those around me? Am I caring for my family, my community, my church, my city, state, and country? All of those things. If it's just about me, I'm not looking at those things. So when I make that the ultimate value or an ultimate value, 
I'm worshiping incorrectly. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good explanation. The next of the four idols that Williams thinks are more prone to those on the political right, um, the next one is sky. And again, he's cramming a concept into an S word. But what he means there is the kind of attitude that Christians can sometimes have, and I have witnessed this, of just waiting to be taken up to heaven. Like, it's just me and Jesus. I'm just going to read my Bible, pray, and someday I'll be out of here. So I'm not going to worry too much about, you know, the people around me or suffering in the world. I'm just going to, you know, focus on reading my Bible. Um, So again, we're talking about good things that become bad things when they're made into ultimate things. And it's funny, I was discussing this concept Um, Mark with my son, Nathan, and he told me about a quote that he had heard that relates to this sky idol. And the quote is, you need to have your mind where your feet are. So, you know, when I'm present with a group of people and they're talking to me, I need to be working on, you know, thinking about how can I minister to these people? Like, this is where I am. This is where God has me right now. How does he want to use me here? So I thought that was neat. But anyway, back to the list of idols. The fourth one is status quo. That that's a works as an S term. And that's the tendency to just accept things the way they are. Um, we're not, you know, this is the way it is. I'm going to live with it. And then, Mark, there's a fifth one, which William says is a tendency not of the right, but of what he calls the alt right. And that is the idol of skin tone. And he points out that this, you know, basically racism is what we're talking about. Absolutely incompatible with Christianity. So I'll let you comment on that specifically, but more generally, Mark, what do you think of Williams naming these as the four primary false gods of the right? I mean, I don't think there's anything inaccurate what he uh, what he's talking about. Uh, I, I think we all suffer from that. I wouldn't say that they're necessarily all of the right either. Uh, the, the last one, the fifth one, the skin tone one really bothered me, to be honest with you, in this book. And the reason I say that is because as somebody who's out in the political world and who hears this term alt-right all the time, mm-hmm. uh, I think it is dramatically, grossly, and hideously overblown. Yeah. I personally, and I'm a guy who does politics every day. I'm out in the field every day. I can tell you in my entire time in politics, which is now 15 years professionally full-time, I have personally encountered one person who I would consider of the alt-right. And I didn't get to meet him. They're at one of our rallies recently, our, our border uh, rally, uh, how many more rally. And they were handing out what I would describe as alt-right literature. And when I called them out from the stage, the thousand plus people there chased him off. And so <laughs> I, don't, I think the alt-right is primarily a boogeyman created by the left. It's a fringe element. There will always be people, always, 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 until... Jesus Christ comes back and reestablishes his kingdom here on earth. There will always be people who are racists. There always have been. That's human nature. It's evil. It's part of our evil sin nature. But the idea that there's some widespread movement called the alt-right that we have to deal with, I think is a fallacy. And I also think, and this is really important, primarily today, the racism in America comes from the left. This is a problem of the left. 
The left is entirely focused on skin tone. Uh, if you look at President Biden just gave a speech uh, and a big speech uh, leading into the 2024 election, and all he talked about was race, 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 and he's creating race tension all across the country, trying to inflate this idea of white supremacy and how bad it is. We all know white supremacy is bad. There's just not very much of it. This is literally the most integrated country on the face of the earth. I travel all over this country, Rita. Every, I mean, you know, 49 states in the last couple of years, still have to get to North Dakota. And everywhere I go, I notice this. I'll sit in an airport and I look around and at the tables around me, got people of all skin tones, all genders, sitting together, eating together, traveling together. I go to church, they're worshiping together. I go to any workplace, they're working together. And I think when we're talking about racism in America, where, where is it? Because I'm everywhere and I don't see it among people. I see it among political figures trying to push it on us. I would absolutely agree. You know, this um, racism on the right is a total fringe thing. Racism on the left has become mainstream in the sense of racism against white people, reverse discrimination. Um, but let's move on, Mark, to the three idols that Williams thinks are the temptations of the left. And the first one I think is a big one in our culture today, and it's the idol of self. We want to be our own self-sufficient gods. The left tells us, including our very young children, that we define ourselves we define our meaning and our purpose. We even determine what our sex is, our gender. Mark, I think he hits the nail on the head with this one. Do you? Yeah, we've become a narcissistic society. He quotes a survey where he says over 80% of people say that personal happiness is the most important value in our lives. I mean, that's really a terrible sickness. It shows that we worship the wrong thing. We focus on the wrong stuff. It's not, it's definitely not all about us. Uh, and this leads to literally nothing good. And I do believe this emanates from the left. But when you say an 80% number, you can see that it has infected the right as well. So I just don't think that th this is limited to the left. And a lot of the things that we see that are a problem on the right uh, that we just went through can be tied to this idea of personal happiness. I mean, yeah. you, even you talk about the sky one about going to heaven and all that stuff. Well, what is that about? That's about me being happy and content. Like none of this really matters because I'm going to go to heaven and be with Jesus. Well, that's about my personal happiness and contentment. That's right. not about looking out in the world and seeing what's wrong and trying to do something about it. Yep. William says that making an idol out of the self is just plain mean. And I have to give this quote here. We were never designed to bear the God-sized weight of creating and sustaining our own identities. It puts an unbearable weight on people's shoulders, especially children, when they're indoctrinated to follow their hearts, be true to themselves, and dream up their own identities. It deprives them of the unspeakable joy and meaning that go with being authored by someone far more brilliant, strong, and loving than we are, end quote. I love that. Mark, I wish we could camp out here, but we're running out of time. The second idol that the left tends to have is the idol of the state. 
And that is a huge one. And Mark, it's right where our, you know, day jobs kind yeah. of focus. Tell us what you think about this one. Yeah, look, I mean, when I do politics, I'm often thinking of 1 Samuel 8, where Samuel goes to the Lord and said, I screwed up and, and the Israelites want a king and, and they want to be like everybody else. They want the state to do everything for them. And I read that and I think, oh, well, he lived in our times. He's living right now because that's where we are. And it certainly comes primarily from the left, uh, where the left says the state should be the center of everything. I remember famously or infamously during the Barack administration era, they had this uh, character that they created and it showed how she depended on government from cradle to grave. And yeah. that's what we're looking at and, and the, relying on the state, idol worshiping the state is outrageous. But again, this is where I think he's wrong. The right does it too. And yes. we want government to solve all of our problems for us. And we try to elect people that are going to be our Messiah and going to fix everything. And I think that's putting our emphasis in the wrong place. So I think while this more openly and primarily emanates from the left, I think this is a problem of the right as well. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'm glad you added that. And the final idol that he calls primarily an idol of the left is the idol of social acceptance. And Mark, I would argue that this one is just as big, if not bigger today on the right. Yes. We don't want to be branded as a bigot or intolerant. We are terrified of being branded as a bigot. Right. We want to be on the right side of history. Williams points out that it's more important for us to be on the right side of scripture. So just briefly, as we get ready to close, tell us about that temptation mark and why it's such a big problem on the right today. Yeah, I think this is most prevalent because we live in an era of where people are watching us now, which is on the internet, right? We're listening on the radio, mass media. And so people who are on the internet and they've got Instagram or Facebook or whatever they're using right now, and if they post something that is scriptural and true, they might get attacked or criticized for it and they're worried about that. So yeah. I think this mob mentality exists both on the right and the left of criticizing people who say true things that might be difficult for people in the modern era to accept. And we're all under that pressure. And a lot of people are cowed by it. I see it in church all the time where churches are doing things that I know are not scripturally correct, saying things that are not scripturally correct because they don't want the pressure, the public pressure and criticism that will come with saying things that are scripturally true. Yep. Absolutely. Well, folks, that's all of our time today, but I hope you'll join us next week as we dive into the next part of this great new book by Thaddeus Williams. It's called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. I'd like to thank our sponsors at Blue Ridge Chimney Services, Blessings Christian Bookstore, Sunshine Ministries, Wishing Well Florists and Travel Services, and our friends at New Beginnings Church and Garber's Church of the Brethren in Harrisonburg. Thanks everyone for listening. If you'd like to make a donation, you can do so by check to Crossroads at P.O. Box 881, Harrisonburg, Virginia, 22803. I'm Rita Peters with Mark Meckler, inviting you to join us again next week for another edition of Crossroads, where faith and culture meet. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads podcast. To learn more about Convention of States, go to conventionofstates.com. 